So we are now clearly in transition mode, very intentionally. So I just want to make it explicit again. I really invite everybody, encourage everyone uh, to engage in social networking. Uh, just conversation over meals, and you know, now is a good time just to get to know each other better as we're preparing for a departure. Uh, so we're clearly in transition, and as we do so, it's good also to note two very different modes of meditation, very relevant as we're making a transition and we arrive wherever we're going from here. And that is one, one mode that has always been important and especially important in just the sheer frenzy the chaos the, uh, of, uh, of the modern world, the pace of life. And that's this very nice word I'm very happy with now, comfortable with, and that's retreat, retreat, right? And I'm not referring about going off someplace for a matter of days or weeks, months or years, but rather even on a, on a regular da daily basis, whether your retreat is 20 minutes a day. But it's a time of withdrawal. Uh, and it's kind of a time out. And so shamat is really exactly designed for that. I mean, the whole point of shamatha to dissolve your coarse mind into the substrate consciousness, that's a retreat from samsara. It's not liberation from samsara, we all know that. But it is kind of a retreat from samsara. All the sharp edges, the, the spikes, the prongs, the discomfort of samsara, you really have kind of a time out. If you're resting in the substrate consciousness, it's pretty sweet. Kind of, you, would, you would easily think, oh, I think I've escaped from samsara. Whereas, no, you haven't. You have a little time out. But enormously important, ever so helpful. So whether it's in a, in, a, in a sports context, like a basketball game or other games, if somebody's injured on, on, the, on the basketball court, for example, you, you know, immediately a ref says, okay, everybody stop, the game is suspended, we have to get this person taken care of. Same thing in football, American football. You have a timeout, and it's time to get the injured person off the court, and if it's really slight, then fix him up, and he comes right back in again. Tennis, the same thing. And so we get injured. We will get injured. That's when it's going to happen. We'll get injured by the world around us, just by meeting very difficult people, encountering just the, the sharp edges of samsara, ill health, adversity, financial issues, and so forth and so on. We're going to get beaten up on occasion, right? And on such occasions, it can be ever so helpful to have a place to retreat to. You know, just be able to withdraw into your room and say, I know I need to engage with all these things. They need my attention. But not every single moment... And right now, I'd like to go and restore my balance, gain some equilibrium, relaxation, stability, clarity. And so that's retreat. Shamatha is about retreat. I mean, long and, long and short of it, whether you're going into a one or two shamatha retreat or you're taking off 20 minutes in the morning to do a bit of shamatha, it's a retreat. And you're telling your family, uh, please don't bug me for 20 minutes. For 20 minutes, I need to retreat, you know. And it's not out of lack of love. In fact, it can be an expression of love. This is so I can balance myself, and I'll come back, and I'll be able to, how do you say, engage with the world as I would like to engage with it. So in that regard, I want to cover these two parts. In that regard, especially when there's been a lot of commotion, maybe it's a conversation, it's, it's just stuff that happens in the world that disrupts the equilibrium of the mind. Now, we know it really disrupts the equilibrium of the mind. You know that. It's called mental afflictions. But there's no question about it. External conditions, including external conditions of our own bodies, ill health and so forth, they definitely catalyze our mental afflictions. And then we see what catalyzes and say, oh, you've really disturbed my mind. Well, we're clear on that one, right? But nevertheless, it's true that situations in the body, in the environment with other people, uh, will catalyze our mental afflictions, and sometimes our minds will be very disturbed. Until you're way up there, that will happen on occasion. 
If you go directly into meditation uh, and you're meditating away, it's very easy to draw the conclusion, I'm wasting my time here. I know what it's like to meditate reasonably well. I had many, many good sessions in Phuket, and this is like one of my worst sessions in Phuket, and I didn't like it there, and I didn't like it here, I don't like it here. I'm just wasting my time. This, my mind is just going churning, 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 and I may as well give up on shamatha because I can't do it. It's very easy to draw that conclusion. I know, I've been there. Uh, and what I would encourage you to do is don't draw that conclusion. It's not the only possible conclusion. Conclusions, once again, are not forced on us. We draw our own conclusions based upon a certain variety of ways to respond. Here's another way of evaluating that I found very useful. And that even when the mind is really disturbed, whether it's out of anger, resentment, anxiety, just being disturbed, whatever it is, the equilibrium of the mind is disrupted. Mental afflictions are active. You're trying to follow your breath or what have you, and you're finding it really difficult. If you evaluate the quality of your session hedonically, then it's inescapable that you'll say, that was a really crappy session. I was on stage one marginally. Right? Understood. But as we all know, and I've said it so many times, evaluating the quality of a meditation session hedonically, that is, how did it go for you, right, is not the only way to evaluate it. It's not a very useful way to evaluate it. It's easy because we're accustomed to, how's your relationship going with this person? And then we describe how that person is relating to us, and, oh, it's going really nice, he treats me well, and blah, blah, blah. We're used to that and it has a certain validity to it, but that validity is pretty superficial because we're evaluating how it is in terms of things beyond our control. That's the bottom line. We can't control how our meditative practice is going to turn out from session to session. Otherwise, we just have only good ones if we can control it, you know, but we can't. And so there's no reason to evaluate our own pr practice. This is the really the core right here. It makes no sense, and it is self-destructive, to evaluate how our practice is going vis-a-vis -vis conditions that are beyond our control. That doesn't make any sense at all. So if you want to evaluate your practice, evaluate your practice and not what happens to you. And so here's what I'm getting at, is I found this to be true. And that is even when you sit down or you lie down, if you're really disturbed, probably lying down could be a really good idea. Um, but really mellow out as much as you can. And that whole issue now take really seriously. Remember it. Settling body, then speech, the breath, the mind in the natural state. Supine position. Been one of those tough days. The mind really disrupted, disturbed. And mellow out, ground, ground, ground. And you're going to be besieged very likely by kinds of rumination, memories, ideas, impulses, all kinds of stuff coming up. And then just keep on releasing doing whatever practice you like. Maybe it's merging mind with space. That's your call. Whether it's mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, shamatha without a sign, merging the mind with space. It's your call. Choose what is most beneficial, right? But among those four, whichever one you find fits best, follow that one. So I'll take, for example, the infirmary, which is always a good place to think about, to return to. In that infirmity, and just so patiently, so gently, so lovingly, breath by breath, just kept releasing, intimately releasing. And again, a nice image is like you have a, a child who's maybe just stepped off the sidewalk and a car comes whizzing around and almost hits the child. And the child jumps back and just freaking out. Like, you know, just, you can all visualize it, just freaking out. No harm, but really terrified. Maybe something else, really terrified. The child, and kind of like, whoa, all frazzled like that. What does the mother do? What does the mother, if mother's right there, what does the mother do? 
you don't spank the child. You don't say, what do you, grow up, grow up, come on, get, get, come on. You're not acting like an adult. I know you're a five-year-old, but you're not acting like an adult. You, know? you don't do that. You all know, so you don't need me to tell you. You're gentle, you're soothing, you're patient, you're calming until that whole vibration settles down. And then the child, thank you. Okay, I'm okay again. My mind is like that. So be the good mother for your own child. Be the good mother for your own mind. And treat it with all the love that a loving mother would treat for her child when the child is really disturbed for whatever reason. And so, how to evaluate. And this is something that's easy to overlook because it's so easy to evaluate the session relative to how is it going in the session. Is my mind really relaxed, really still, really clear? You've heard, you heard it. And they say, no, it's not relaxed, it's not still, and it's not clear, so it sucks. It's very easy to do that. But now consider this. From that hedonic perspective, how did it go for you, right? It was a very poor session. Okay, we're going to say, okay, it was a poor session. Relative to other ones, you've had that were much more pleasant, much more relaxed still and, and, and clear. But then ask this, breath by breath, as you're just letting off steam, and it really feels that way, as you're just breathing out and breathing out and releasing gently, gently, breath by breath, Releasing the thoughts, the ruminations, the memories, the agitation. Releasing, releasing, releasing. So let's imagine it's 24 minutes. And you had your hands full the whole time. It was just an ongoing process of, you know, more hordes coming to the mind and releasing them, more hordes coming to the mind, releasing them gently, kind of with a smile, releasing them, coming back to the earth element, back to the body, back to the breath. At the end of the session, 24-minute session, See how you feel now compared to how you were at the beginning of the session. Because right? that's what this is for. It's not how high can you get, how many, how, how many levels can you achieve you know, in 24 minutes. That's a silly criterion. But that 24 minutes, even if it, it, you wouldn't hedonically evaluate it as, oh, that was a really good session. Uh, that was a session when my mind was besieged by rumination and agitation and so forth. But having just gentled this wild freaking out horse of your mind for 24 minutes, at the end of the session, when you get up, you kind of, okay. Mind is still not really at peace, but okay, I'm a bit more grounded, a bit more subtle. Okay, this is better. I could actually start meditating now, maybe. You know? Then you know, okay, that was really worthwhile. 24 minutes, hedonically, it sucked. But eudaimonically, what did you bring to that challenge? And if you brought love and patience and per perseverance and skill and means of just releasing the energy behind all that turbulence, you can say, what happened to me sucked. What I brought to it, first rate. And then take satisfaction in it. You know? and, it's satis and it's satisfaction that's reality-based because you can see, okay, it was only 24 minutes, but when I came out, my mind had greater balance. Introspection was restored. I was able to find that stillness within. And be nice to have more, but if I can't, if I can't take out more time right now, because now I've got to get, get back to work, maybe this is a lunch break, you know, and you have some place you can lie down in your office. I had that when I was a professor at UC, UC Santa Barbara. I had a meditation pad, and when, when I had no office hours, I'd lock the door, and I, because and, I had a really heavy teaching and teaching schedule, student meeting, all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of work, and it was too far to go home, so I would get to have a bite to eat, and I'd lay out my yoga mat in my office, door locked. If anybody knocks, I'm not answering. I'm not in. And I'm meditating. And then I would reboot, just like, you know, people taking siesta. Well, I don't sleep during the daytime, virtually never. 
But that was, that was my time out. And then I was ready to face, the, you know, engage with the rest of the day from like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, coming out fresh. Okay? Coming out fresh. It really worked. How was the quality of the session? Well, okay. Not, not my best session, but it certainly was my best session because it was really helping. Right? So that's about retreat. That's about retreat. And having, again, because we have so little time now, this is worth our time. But I'll just say it again. You've heard it before, but I'm just going to really strongly emphasize it, now, emphasize it now that we're in transition mode. As much as you can, and nobody's too busy for this. I mean, nobody is too busy for this. Is 10 seconds here and one minute there and 30 seconds there. You know what I'm going to say? Season the day. Everybody comes to stoplights when you're driving, right? Unless, actually, once it didn't happen to me. Driving from the countryside into a major city, right into the center of the city, through the city, and not one single stoplight. And in fact, and I'm telling you the truth, when, when my car came through, uh, the cars all pulled over to the side. I'm telling you the truth, not a joke. They pulled over to the side. And they just created like Moses parting the waters. <laughs> when I came into town, uh, we had a police escort. And they just called, the, they, they just tell all, they, they, we did, we had a police escort. Alan Wallace is coming into town. You know there's going to be punchline. I'll get to it. But Alan Wallace is coming to town, this major capital city of a country. The cars went off to the side. We had no stoplights. We just went right to the destination of the mansion. Uh, oh, there was a guy in the car with me. He was, uh, yeah, he was the prime minister of Mongolia. So it might have had something to do with him. You know. I mean, it's possible. So I've had that experience once. And now I know everything else by contrast because it never happens. You know, Because <laughs> there we are. But everybody has stoplights, everybody puts down a phone, everybody finishes the internet, the email, at some point. Nobody's telling us we can't take 15 seconds, that we can't take 30 seconds, or a minute, or getting to the stoplight and say, oh, I hope it's a long one. And just keeping your eyes just enough open to see when it turns green. And then, <sighs> How sweet it is. Oh, a really long one. Good, five-way stop. Good, I'll probably be here for a while. Why not? Why not do that rather than being frustrated? You know? So that makes a big difference. 10, 15 times, 20 times through the day. 10 seconds, 30 seconds. Everybody can afford that time. It's only our concepts. So now I'm too, too busy. But ne nobody has that much you know, demands on our time that we can't do that. So that's all for retreat. It is a time of withdrawal, of disengagement, of recouping, licking your wounds, restoring balance, uh, replenishing your supplies, as in retreat in wartime and so forth and so on or a timeout in sports. So that's half of it. But very happily, I've been enormously satisfied with this retreat. Your participation, getting to know you individually, we've never had one this good. I'm going to say sorry to everybody else in the past, we've never had this one, one this good. Uh, this has been really marvelous from my perspective. And a great deal of it is just the material that was there. You know, these four, all four of the shamanic methods, they're so marvelous. But this time, first time I've ever taught the seven-point mind training in eight weeks. And we see it's coming just a nice, easy end Never had, never slowed down, never speeded up, and we'll probably finish it today, and then tomorrow we have our closing, and then we're all finished. So it turned out quite nicely, you know. But the other, so one word is retreat, and you might know what's the other word I'm going to pair with that. Anybody know me well? Retreat and? What is is always the right answer, whatever the question is. <laughs> She's listened. And, and what's the word I'm fishing for? Expedition, yes, expedition, expedition.
the shamatha can be good for the expedition in the sense that when you venture out, you do come with some greater balance and so forth. But the, the seven-point mind training, that's expedition, kind of like 95% expedition. It has a little snippet of shamatha in there, and the rest is all expedition. It's all coming out of our ruts, coming out, re-engaging with our lives, with our families, business, the world at large, the news, what's happening in the news and so forth, and the expedition getting out of the same old patterns that we've been in perhaps for decades that just grind us back into the mulch of samsara, you know, just perpetuating the problems, the knee-jerk mental affliction reactions to stimuli that we're so accustomed with. And here's this marvelous array of practices with the core of the two bodhicittas just helping us. There, Atisha being the source of this and then his whole, all of his teachers behind him back to the Buddha Shakyamuni, but really providing us with this whole skill set of like spiritual alchemy, whatever's coming up. Now here's how you can transform it. Here's how you can transform it. You've just had a really unpleasant conversation with somebody on the phone or in person, what have you, left a lot of residue and you're, and you're kind of starting to dwell on the other side. You remember? Dwell on the other side. This person has this defect and this defect. And saying, wait a minute, that was one of the things, that, that, oh yeah, that was one of the pledges. That might, might, not, might, might not be so helpful just to be dwelling upon other people's faults and defects. So what can I do? And then you know. Donglen would be a really good start. You know, and say, okay, right now. Now is the time for an expedition. Now is not the time for retreat. Okay, I'm going to stop thinking about you. You made me unhappy. I'm going to start, okay, I'm, I'm going to block you out. No to you, no to you, no to you. I'm not going to solve anything because that person is coming right back. And if no real transformation has taken place in terms of how we respond to that person, then all we'll feel is, you're taking me out of my nice, warm, and cozy space. I like that phrase from Morgan, but we all experience it. You're taking me out of my warm and cozy space. I don't want to deal with you anymore. It's like, nobody who's not nice, don't talk to me anymore. I only want to not talk to nice people. If you're not nice, then don't talk at all. I don't think it's going to work out very well. So, shamat is for the warm and cozy place. I'm all for warm and cozy places. But as we all know, it doesn't really radically transform or liberate anything at all. It's a really good timeout. The same purpose as retreats in warfare and timeout in sports. It's not a solution. It doesn't help you win the game all by itself. But it may help you win the game by restoring and then coming back with a new game plan in sports, a new game plan. Hey, if we're losing, good, do something different. And so we're, thus far, we can say we've been kind of losing the battle with samsara. And that's not anything outside. That's on mental affliction. And now the seven-point mind training is not simply a retreat. It's a new game plan. Here's a way you can win this, win this game, if you want to call it a game. Here's the way you can win this war of your own mental afflictions. And become a jina, which the Buddha called himself. He referred to himself in that, first, in that first encounter. I am a jina. I am a victorious one. Gain victory over life and death. And so the seven-point mind training, there it is. It's a new game plan, a new strategy, new tactics. So that when we venture out, we're returning and we're engaging with whatever life tosses up to us or unfolds to us, we are now becoming skillful to transform it into Dharma. And so then we're being nourished, both when we're in solitude, both when we're in retreat, hallelujah, we have shamatha, but also we're not feeling, ah, oh, shucks, now I have to go out to the world again. That's also part of the practice. And that's where the really deep transformation will take place. Right? And then we bring the two. So when we're coming back to the shamatha, bringing the world with us. So as the Dalai Lama said, I always feel connected with others as you're sitting down to engage in your shamatha practice. Is it simply to lick your wounds so you can feel a little bit better? Or why not make it as meaningful as possible? And when you come back to your little 24-minute session at the end of the day, 
why not come back and bring bodhicitta as your motivation? You know? So there's your little 24 minutes. But that's 24 minutes in the greatest investment of your time and effort you can possibly do. Let that little 24 minutes at the end of the day be not simply to get over the wounds of the day and release some stress, but to take you one step further towards awakening. So times for retreat, times for expedition, times to let your retreat benefit the expedition, let your expedition benefit your shamatha practice, uh, then we'll have a really rich practice. In the last seven retreats, when we get to about this, this, this point in the retreat, then I've often said, okay, now I'm your Dharma dietitian, your, your Dharma nutritionist, and I'll tell you a balanced diet. And I'll speak about wisdom practices being one element and shamatha practices being one element and practices for the heart, whether devotional practices, four measurables, bodhicitta as being another part. And so I'll tell these three basic food groups. Shamatha, something for wisdom, something for compassion, for devotion. Um, but this time, apart from that very brief reference, I'm not going to say anything because you already have it. You already have it. It's there in the combination of the shamatha and the seven-point mind training where you have ultimate bodhicitta and all the teachings with that. That's wisdom in spades. And then you have bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta, and then all of the ancillary practices. That's all about skillful means. So I have nothing to add to what Atisha has shared with us here. Is there it is. This is a full and balanced diet, what we have right here. And the shamatha was, of course, just teased out of the seven-point mind training. So if you wonder, within that big basket of the seven-point mind training, oh, but I have these four shamatha practices. Isn't this in addition? Nope. Any more than shamatha is in addition to lamrim. Or vipassana is in addition to shamatha. Silly, wait a minute. <laughs> the culmination of lamrim is shamatha and vipassana. And likewise, the seven-point mind training begins... First of all, with developing an authentic motivation goes right to shamatha. So you take those shamatha and say, okay, you could, you could say then quite, if this, is, if this moves you if, you, if you resonate with this, you can say, what's your practice? If somebody asks you your practice, say, oh, seven-point mind training. Seven-point mind training. Oh, I thought you practiced shamatha. Yeah, my shamatha's in there. Don't you practice bodhicitta? Yeah, that's in there. I thought, but what about vajrayana? Oh, yeah, that's in there. Avalokiteshvara. It's in there. Dzogchen, Dzogchen, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. Yeah, Dzogchen's in there. I'm a seven-point mind-training practitioner. <laughs> so have some fun with it, you know. But it really is a basket for all seasons and for all practices. It's really quite marvelous. So there we are. Good. So retreat, expedition, integration of the two. Yeah. Good. So it's not too late to meditate. Let's have a quiet session. Your call. Oh, Nasu. One other comment in terms of transition, and that is we've all had at least some experience, even if it wasn't your primary shamatha practice, in the method of settling the mind in its natural state. So we have some taste anyway, a little bit of familiarity with maintaining kind of resting awareness in its own place while it's being barraged with or assaulted by thoughts, memories, and so forth and so on. We all know what that's like, and we know it's challenging, but we also, I think everybody's kind of figured out it is possible not to be simply swept away by every single thought that comes up, but actually be able to observe them. And likewise, for the emotions, desires, the subjective impulses that arise, not simply to be cognitively fused with them and have our attention totally focused on the object of that emotion, desire, and so on, but to be aware this is the desire, this is the emotion that's arising, and have that awareness. And so as this is a very valuable skill in meditation, enabling you then to settle your mind in its natural state, kind of so obvious that hardly needs to be said, that when we're engaging with the people outside the society of our mind, people with their own mental continua, 
that will encounter the same stuff. People talking a lot, behaving in a wide variety of ways, sometimes agreeable, sometimes disagreeable. And to be in a conversation or in a very crowded situation or very kind of chaotic, cascading waterfall type of situation, whatever it may be. And in the midst of that, to be able to be not totally caught up in it as in a non-lucid dream, totally immersed in it, swept away by that current, but be, you're like the stone within the river. You're stone in the river. It's still, and in the, in the, in the river is flowing around you. In the midst of that, whatever's happening in the world, to, to really get the taste, to restore that sense of being still in the midst of activity. And as the person's talking, being still. And again, it's not withdrawal. You're not trying to do a shamatha trick here of disengaging, going into dissociation, but maintaining the stillness. And being very attentive, very engaged, but still. And then when you're responding, responding because you wish to, because it's your choice, and not simply out of reaction, which is very, very easy to do. And then as you get that, develop that skill in engaging with other people, of just being quietly present, attentive, heart open, and then responding when the time is appropriate, and then being silent again, as you develop that skill in your interpersonal relationships, you can probably find it's easier to come back to settling the mind into natural state and say, oh, this is easy. These people aren't real. These are just images of my mind. You know? So not a bit more intimate, they're kind of in your face, but nevertheless, you'll find these two situations will be very complementary to each other. Let's take just a few minutes since our time is running short. We have a little backlog of questions. Uh, see if I can finish with the um, Aga Saga. <laughs> <laughs> So I've already responded to whether higher realization is possible without achieving shamatha. I responded to that yesterday. Is it even for me, is it even something for me to go to all those short-term dzogchen? Is it, is it even something, worth, is it, is it worthwhile for me to go to all the short-term dzogchen, Mahamudra, Vajrayana teachings and retreats? Uh, well, I mean, I just, I'm not going to say, oh, yes, whatever dzogchen, Mahamudra, Vajrayana teaching and retreat, there are, you should go to it. I'm not going to say that. I mean, that's silly. Some are taught by incompetent people or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but is it worthwhile in general if you find a qualified teacher, an authentic teacher giving authentic teachings, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Vajrayana, uh, in principle, might that be a really good thing to do? Of course, yeah. In principle, it really could be. But that, I'm, I'm, I'm given that question quite frequently, and I really turn it right back to the person who asked it. And that is when you have the opportunity to receive maybe empowerment, teachings of these more esoteric aspects of Buddhism, um, a major part of this is just, what does your heart tell you? Are you really drawn to it intuitively? Uh, would you really like to receive that empowerment and then learn what the commitments are? Are there commitments? Are you ready to do that practice every day for the rest of your life? If not, then, and, that, and that's required, then don't go, right? Even if it's a great lama and very rare and all of that, if it's not something you're willing to carry through with, then better not do it, right? Clearly. And then for others, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, often they come, they're taught without empowerment, sometimes with, sometimes without. Uh, there are some teachers I think are really not qualified and they're teaching anyway, and others who are rather qualified and some are extraordinarily qualified. You know? And so then judge it. Check with your Dharma friends to see who's really, really authentic. Um, and then if you feel kind of really, I, I think I'd really like to do this, go with it. But I would, I would, I would, I would never say this. Don't go because you're not, uh, you're not ready for that. Don't go to Mahamudra Dzogchen Avatarana teaching. No, no, you're not ready for that. I wouldn't say that. I've never said that, right? I mean, if you're a rank beginner, you don't know what Buddha means. 
Okay, well, maybe, okay, slow down a little bit. Four noble truths, why don't we work with those a little bit? But for this group here, uh, no, I, would, I, would not, I, would, I don't say that. And so this is where we can be too, too bottom-heavy. Is oh, a little old me, I'm not ready for that. I, I haven't really achieved stage three or four yet in shamatha, so I shouldn't budge. Now we're too bottom-heavy, right? And then many people are too top-heavy. They've overlooked shamatha, vipassana, etc., etc., but they're all up there in la-la land of, you know, make-believe Dzogchen, or make-believe vipassana for that matter. So uh, it takes time, money, and effort to attend them, so wouldn't it be better and just pra uh, to, pra uh, to just practice diligently at home instead of chasing lamas and teachings. I agree, chasing lamas and teachings, it can be um, just kind of uh, disintegrating. You know, so you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and this lama said this, and but that one said that, and now what I do, and I went to this nice Theravada teacher, but he thinks Mahayana is a bunch of rubbish, and then this, and so it can be really fragmenting. There's a good word. It can be very fragmenting. So just generally the notion chasing after lamas and teachings and empowerments uh, reminds me of, of when we were as an American boy, a long time ago, collecting baseball cards. But I don't have Babe Ruth yet, and it's, and it's really nice. He was a great baseball player. I, I need a Babe Ruth. I haven't, I haven't received Goya Samaja or Vajrayagini. I've, I've, got, I've got this one, and this, but I don't have that one, and it's a really cool one. I think I need to get Vajrayagini. <laughs> okay, maybe not. So generally, you know, chasing after lamas. <laughs> You know, chasing after lamas, teaching some empowerment is probably a bad idea. And in general, the phrasing itself is a giveaway. Right? So choose, choose well. And then, of course, um, so there's a middle way here, very clearly. But happily now with these eight weeks, and we've, we're going to just kind of a nice, we're going to walk to the end, of the end of the line in the seven-point mind training. It just worked out so perfectly. I mean, just leisurely stroll to finish it. Uh, that whatever other teachings you receive from other teachers, empowerments, etc., etc., Theravada, Zen, Chan, I won't, you know, I don't know those traditions very well, but I wouldn't be surprised if they'll fit in here, you know? So that's all, all, all I would say. I wouldn't be surprised. For the inter-Tibetan tradition, I'll say with a lot of confidence, they do fit. And so when you go in, when you go to some other teaching, then see where it fits into the basket, you know? Say, okay, this is going to augment this. Maybe it's teaching the four immeasurables. They're not referred to in the seven-point mind training. Where's the four immeasurables? Not there. Oh, of course, that's, that's supporting relative bodhicitta. But... The four applications of mindfulness, they're not tough there either. Yeah, yeah, that's part, that, that leads to ultimate bodhicitta. And so like, I, I, I could just keep on going on and on. He said, oh, no, that fits right there. You know? And then you'll, what you'll do is rather than just going chasing this and chasing that, you have your container, and then you say, oh, that teaching, that would go there. And oh, that teaching, that would go there. Yeah. And it's augmenting what you already have. That makes a lot of sense. We live in a world that does not support people who do not produce, yeah, be productive. So even if we manage to get all our outer and inner conditions to, at some point, getting to be, attend to a long, we get to attend a long-term retreat, what's going to happen after that? You're going to die. <laughs> There's some answers I really know the answer to. You're going to get, you're going to get old, you're going to get sick, and then you're going to die. That's going to happen after your retreat. Now, ask me, what's going to happen if you don't go into retreat? You're going to get old, you're going to get sick, and you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. Right? Those are the guaranteed parts. Um, you might have some felicity and all kind of ups and downs, but those are kind of things that are given. So we kind of just hold that in mind. It kind of does help to release all attachment to this life and let your mind become dharma, because there it is. Uh, and of course, we need to be sensible. You don't want to just come out of retreat and be flat, broke, and have no place to live. Um, but there's a middle way there. And uh, so, for example, what about 
retirement. Well, we all will. <laughs> it's, it's one more others guaranteed. It may be when you're 45, you just had an automobile collision and you're dying. Well, that's your retirement. You know, then you're retiring, retiring from this lifetime. I mean, that happened. Or you get an unexpected illness and now you're retiring. You weren't planning to retire at this time, but the illness says you're about to retire. In which case, the seven-point mind training is spectacular preparation for that. We have the five powers for life. We have the five powers for death. And so this is for all seasons, living, death, good health, bad health. This is for everything. And so, um, so I'm not going to go into specifics, you know, the, uh, the, the Asanga retirement plan, <laughs> you know, some special kind of thing for uh, people living in the 21st century. But it's a, it's a middle way there. It's a middle way. And there we are. So how would you live in this world after emerging from, let's say, five-year retreat? Uh, find out. That's part of the adventure. Part of the adventure. Can't plan at all. But, but, but if, if you go, don't go into retreat, you get a job. And you think, this is going to be my job for life. And then five years from now, the economy takes total tailspin. The, the, this great big lurching elephant of the United States economy, where they're just raising the debt as the debt like the sky. You know? uh, one of the day, that great big lurching drunken elephant is going to fall into a pit. You know? And it's such a big economy, it's going to have a big global impact. So sorry, I'm apologizing already because it's going to happen. You, know, you can't just keep on going from 16 trillion and keep on adding and adding. Uh, because you don't want to make any necessary sacrifices now, which a number of European countries have had the smarts to do. They're cutting back, they're suffering, they're cutting back, tightening the belt, so they're trying to balance their budget. And America, for the time being, isn't doing that. So I think we're going to be, we will be paying the piper, as we say. And if it weren't for such a big economy, then we could tell you, and that's America's private business. But in any case, we can say the economic forecast for planet Earth is going to be up and down, shall we say. Um, and so even where we think there's security, a really solid job, uh, or a really solid relationship. That can happen. There are very meaningful, solid, durable relationships. And then little things like illness come in. You know? And then suddenly a relationship that was going to be for life turns out to be a five-and-a-half-year plan. So something else came up. So where, wherever it is, if we, don't, if we consider, we can set up a false dichotomy, and this will be it, we'll take a break. Ah, if I'm in samsara, then I've got some real security. I've got my job, I've got my income, I've got my house, I'm paying off my mortgage, I've gotten everything, I've got some security there. Now, Dharma, that's precarious. Oh, that's very iffy, I don't, uh-oh. So I've either got security of samsara or I've got Dharma. Wait a minute. I thought we're taking refuge in Dharma, which means that's where we're looking for security. Okay? So wherever we are, whether we're giving ourselves 100% to hedonic, our notions of security are an illusion. You know? And I've known so many people who are successful, and now they are locked into the security of, an, of a job that gives them no satisfaction. But they don't know any way out, because if they lose that, they don't even have the security of having an unsatisfying job. You know? So now, what exactly is the nature of the security? You're now secure, you're safe to have a relatively unsatisfying, anxious, driven life for the rest of your life. But you're really secure there. You can have it for the rest of your life until you get sick and die. So false dichotomies are easy here. And of course, the world will support that. Oh, why are you doing that? You're, you're throwing up, throwing up your, your future security and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, there's some truth to that, but not a whole lot. You know? So the, what I have found, and this is now first-person experience, that um, the more I find, and I have found this to a large extent, the more I find that I can live quite contentedly with very little, uh, then that makes me very unanxious about outer stuff.
So, living in simplicity, being less and less reliant on more and more things out there, more and more reliant on taking the inner refuge, then we live more fearlessly. And that's a good thing. Hola, so? So, I want to hear some chatter today. Chatter, chatter, chatter. I want some real chatter. You know. Don't disappoint me in sitting. I don't want to, like, you know, dining, dining room morgue. I want to see some real live corpses there. Okay. Enjoy your day. See you at 4.30.